ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora koutou. Joining us today on Tea with the High Commission is the award-winning journalist, author and editor Anna Fifield. Anna began her career in journalism here in New Zealand before heading to London in 2001 to work for the Financial Times. While at the FT, she was US political correspondent in Washington, D.C., Middle East correspondent in Beirut and Tehran, and Korea correspondent in Seoul. She then took up the role of Tokyo bureau chief for the Washington Post, uh, which she did until 2018, uh, followed by Beijing bureau chief. Anna's reported extensively on North Korea and in 2019 published her book, The Great Successor, The Secret Rise and Rule of Kim Jong-un. Over her career, Anna's reported from more than 20 countries. And now she's come home to Aotearoa, New Zealand, as editor of the Dominion Post and head of Stuff's Wellington Newsroom. And she very recently, I should note, won the 2021 Kiwi Expat Abroad World Class Award. So, well, I feel a bit exhausted just going <laughs> through that potted uh, career. But Anna, no mai haere mai. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you very much, Laura. Kia ora. And it's very nice to be here with tea. With tea, exactly. So, Anna, you returned home uh, last year in January 2020, just as COVID was taking off in China. Um, And initially it was just a temporary visit, wasn't it? But then you decided to stay. So tell us about that and how you're enjoying being home. Yes, I had a very strange year. I mean, everybody had a very strange year, but I was doing a lot of toing and froing. I was in China in January when... Uh, it was January the 3rd that I first started to get signs of something weird happening in Wuhan. So, of course, I was reporting on that in my job as the Washington Post correspondent in Beijing. But by uh, kind of the middle end of January, schools closed, everything started to close down. And it was more out of practicality than uh, health reasons that I brought my son home to New Zealand. I'm a solo parent uh, doing a big job and with not, not much support there in China. So I brought my son home to New Zealand to stay with my mum and I went back to to China. I stayed in New Zealand for six hours and got back on the plane. Wow. So that was not very fun. And then I spent a few months back in China by myself, running around the country, trying to report on this uh, on this epidemic that was ravaging across China. And then in March, there was a little break, uh, and it looked like China had things under control. So I took the opportunity to come home and to, to see my whanau, um, and I accidentally got locked out of China during that time. China shut the borders, and I couldn't make it back in time. So I had four months at home, which is the longest time I'd spent here in 20 years. And obviously, it was strange with lockdown and everything, but it enabled me to kind of reconnect with a lot of people that I hadn't had a chance to connect with. Um, Uh, over those flying Christmas trips in the previous 20 years. In June, my son and I returned to Beijing, uh, but by that stage, the seed had been planted, and I just thought it was time to go home. Mm. Uh, It wasn't really because of COVID. It was more because of the environment in China, and 26 American journalists had been expelled, uh, you know, almost overnight. It became very inhospitable for those of us who remained I looked at the US and thought I didn't want to go back there and, and then stuff was bought by a New Zealander and had this new lease on life and it just seemed like the universe was telling me 
time to go home. Yeah. So you made a virtue out of circumstances changing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it just felt like all of a sudden all of the stars aligned and it's worked out really well for us. Fantastic. And how, so you've been, you know, you're presumably settled back in uh, now and I'm sure your son's enjoying um, life in Wellington. But can you tell me, you were away for 20 years. How has New Zealand changed in the years since you left? I think the biggest difference by far is how we have embraced our biculturalism and how this has become the norm now. You know, I hadn't really grasped how entrenched this was and how deeply felt this was until I came home properly and that it's not just lip service, people doing their mihi, uh, it's not virtue signalling. I think people are really trying, on the whole, to do better by tangata whenua, embrace Māori culture, Māori language, um, and to think about how we can do things better. Obviously, there is still a very long way to go in terms of um, fairness and equity for tangata whenua, Mm. but I think we have made great strides, and I think it's a really beautiful thing to watch and to see and to experience, and people are being much more aware of the responsibilities on us as a bicultural nation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and living true to the principles of the of the Treaty of Waitangi. So, can you can you talk then a little bit about how that plays out in the media and journalism world, and and also about your role as as editor? Because of course, you made quite a significant move recently in terms of talking about historical reporting of Maori issues on a daily basis. It means using as much te reo as feels natural mm. and feels uh, and comes naturally in our coverage. Um, and it's a really beautiful thing to see the younger reporters in my newsroom don't need to be told or encouraged. Like, it's very natural for them to write tamariki or to write Fano into stories without translation. But then we also do, I think, kind of take on a... Uh, a role where we can introduce more words into the daily conversation and so we will have other words in our stories and translate them and help people learn new words Um, but then that's one aspect another aspect is how we are covering issues and making sure that we consider a Māori perspective uh, when we report on issues especially issues relating to Māori it seems like such an obvious thing but in the past you would see stories about Māori and nobody had gone and talked to iwi or sought that kind of input. Um, Looking at how we describe different groups and approach different stories. So it's very conscious on a day-to-day basis uh, in how we approach our job and also trying to make sure we can provide pathways and opportunities for young Māori and Pacifica reporters and to try to make our newsrooms look more like New Zealand as a whole. Mm. Uh, So that's one thing. But then, as you mentioned, there are the bigger projects that we've been doing. And last year, at the end of last year, staff uh, apologised to Māori for 160 years of racist coverage, which was a huge watershed moment and something I felt was very bold for us to do and it certainly had its detractors and a lot of people are quite confronted by this but I think we have a role to play and we are absolutely on the right side of history and doing the right thing by uh, apologising for our role in contributing to systemic racism and also asking to be held to account. Like we're saying we will continue to make mistakes and do things wrong but call us out on it and we will do better. 
Yeah. So, so that, that links, I think, in a way slightly to my next question, which is about trust in the news. Because a recent study from the Auckland University of Technology found that on average, New Zealand's trust in the news is higher than the international average. So what do you think that tells us, either about New Zealand media or New Zealand as a country? Is there something there around scale? There may be something around scale. I think, yeah, we are much smaller mm. than many of these other international uh, industries we're, that we're being compared with. You know, I think part of it is that we are not as extreme. We don't have the extremes that other countries have, and particularly we don't have Rupert Murdoch mm. in New Zealand. You mm. know, so we have no equivalent of The Sun or Fox News and these kind of media outlets that are actively trying to be partisan and to be political mm. and to take a stand and and because we are so small no media outlets in New Zealand can really do that. I mean, there may be individual um, radio and TV hosts yeah. <laughs> who do stake out a place on the political spectrum for themselves, but on the whole I think reporters are trying to be neutral all the time. Um, Trust is something that we think about a lot at Stuff, and Sinead Boucher, when she bought Stuff, said that she wanted to make trust our metric, not clicks. Uh, we can be more transparent about the ways that we do things, um, and a lot of people don't understand how journalism works. Mm. So in our reporting, we are trying to say as much as possible we talked to a dozen people about this or explaining why some people may be anonymous and why we have granted that anonymity and just bringing our readers more inside the process so they can understand how we arrive at things. Yeah. I mean, so I think transparency in reporting is extremely important. But I would just add the caveat, you know, last year we had transparency during COVID because the one o'clock press conference was televised every day. And it turned out that a lot of people did not like what they saw um, when journalists were holding the government to account. So that was quite confronting for me, I think, because that's exactly what we should be doing, showing people the process. Journalists should be asking tough questions of the people in power. But at that time, it did feel like it didn't quite match the mood of the nation, mm. which was about being together. Mm. Yeah, I spotted that. It was very interesting because, as you say, it's absolutely what you expect of journalists is to ask the difficult questions and not take everything necessarily at, at face value. And that's, of course, how you, how you, you know, it's a critical underpinning of democracy, isn't it, to have that scrutiny absolutely. from the press. And that's something we should be doing all the time, asking the tough questions. You know, I think one of the things that we've seen um, with COVID is that there, there is a sort of temptation sometimes to hunker down and focus on what's happening at home. And that's true also in media media coverage. But we've seen a lot since since you've taken over this role, quite a big emphasis on international issues. So how are you, can you talk about how you're using your overseas experience and all your foreign policy reporting to really spark greater interest in international issues in New Zealand? Oh, thank you for noticing mm. that. Yes, I have been trying on that front. I mean, first up, we're running more international uh, cover coverage, you know, stories contributed from agencies outside, and I don't hesitate to put those on the front page when uh, it warrants it. I think Wellington in particular is a very um, internationally minded audience, so that's not a hard sell here. I think the way I'm bringing that experience to bear is things like I still read a lot of international coverage. And so, for example, when I saw that Taiwan and Singapore were experiencing a, a second wave of infections, those other countries that had been considered gold standard mm -hmm. uh, in their response to COVID, 
that's the kind of situation where I would go to a reporter and say, what are the implications for New Zealand on this? Uh, you know, should we be worried? Should we be learning lessons from these two places? Um, and, and that re- did result in a front-page story. So I guess that's one example. Um, the other thing I'm really happy about, uh, well, since I arrived, I commissioned a series of opinion articles about how New Zealand should be dealing with the challenge of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and I think probably there's, uh, you know, inside stuff, people will be like, oh, there goes Anna on about China again. Um, but I was really heartened. We got lots of great submissions uh, across, well, a big part of the spectrum answering this question of the China challenge. And it generated a lot of discussion. It did really well mm. online. So it was a sign that New Zealanders do crave that kind of international substantive um, discussion. I have noticed, my team and I have noticed over the last you know, couple of years, uh, there has been a bit of a shift in the public debate and public attitudes, you know, away from one that was traditionally very much focused on the economic opportunities and trade with China, which is, of course, critically important, mm-hmm. um, but also looking at, you know, where we need to look out for our own interests, what the security challenges are, um, and how you balance those different equities. And I think there's a much more informed debate about that. And, of course, this sort of reporting and these sorts mm-hmm. of challenges are a critical part of that. I agree. I think that this has really come onto the New Zealand radar Um, but I still do feel like we're a few years behind the conversation in the UK and in Australia and certainly in the US um, in terms of being um, ready for that challenge of China and there's still a real sense that we can escape this um, which I'm not sure that Mm. we can I feel like it's almost inevitable that China will seek to retaliate against us economically in the same way that it has with the UK over Hong Kong Mm. and Huawei with Australia with the US with Canada I mean of course we have almost all of our, well, many of our economic eggs in China's basket, and this is a big consideration for an exporting country like us, especially since the things we export, like milk powder, can be sourced in many other places, not like Australia with all its commodities. But what we've seen from China over the past few years is that they will retaliate regardless. So really, and they will do what they're going to do regardless of the criticism. So it's really incumbent on us to stand up for our values and as well as our interests and to to do the right thing there when it comes to Xinjiang, when it comes to Hong Kong. Um, We need to be on the right side of history here. Yeah. And 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 then sticking with values, um, I want to talk a bit about media freedom uh, because the UK has very much spearheaded the Global Media Freedom Coalition, and we're delighted that New Zealand recently joined that. And you know that's of course and a recognition that media freedom is a critical underpinning of any democracy and, and vital in holding governments uh, to account and making sure that the public you know understand what's going on. And I know of course that you know as with any journalist, but it's something that's particularly close to to your heart. Can you can you talk a little bit about some of the barriers that you've faced when reporting stories in different countries? What's your experience been of some of the real restrictions on journalists? Uh, yes, well, I've reported from North Korea many times uh, and Gaddafi's Libya, Syria under Bashar al-Assad, um, Iran. So there, there were varying degrees of restrictions um, but always a lot of restrictions. You know, in North Korea and Libya, you couldn't go anywhere without a government minder, you know, monitoring you at all times, stopping you from going places. Um, there was no independent reporting in those places. 
And many of the other ones in Syria, Iran, you might not have been conscious of them, but they certainly would have been around and keeping tabs. And so in all of these places, I have been conscious, of course, about my own kind of safety while doing mm. this. But the biggest consideration by far, especially when dealing with North Korea and North Koreans have escaped, but increasingly in dealing with China in 2020, 2021, under Xi Jinping and the restrictions he has imposed there, um, my top priority was always not endangering the people who may talk to me. And so this is something where I think media freedom issues have real world implications in that you know, I know in many of these places that if somebody talks to me and is critical of the government in any way or even is seen to be helping foreign media, that they could face very serious ramifications for that. Um, so that's something I'm very conscious of and obviously not wanting to place mm. anybody in jeopardy. Uh, that's part of the reason why I decided to leave China, because I felt like I was not able to do the kind of reporting I wanted to do without endangering people, um, particularly in September last year, I made a trip to Xinjiang and it felt like North Korea there. Um, so that's obviously one extreme and I would look for ways around that. Weirdly, my best reporting on North Korea came from uh, Laos and Thailand and South Korea, right. places where people had escaped to and were there for able to, to um, speak freely without fear of retribution or punishment. So talking, you talk about North Korea and you've talked about going to Xinjiang. Um, tell me about your book, The Great Successor, and which shines a light on the rise and rule of Kim Jong-un. How did you go about getting that information? You said just now that you um, uh, talked to people who were outside of, mm -hmm. of North Korea. But tell me a little bit about the process of researching and writing about a leader of a country where media is so tightly controlled. Yeah, so it all um, began, I first went to North Korea in 2005 when I was the Financial Times correspondent covering the Koreas. Uh, and I was really lucky in getting into North Korea five times in four years. You know, I first of all, I went to the North Korean embassy in Ealing uh, to talk to them. And that's what paved the way for me getting in that first time. Um, and when I was there, I was just thinking, you know, there's no way this corrupt, decrepit system can survive an unprecedented, you know, second transition from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-il. So imagine my surprise when I returned in 2014 for the Washington Post this time and saw that not only was Kim Jong-un surviving, but he almost seemed to be thriving. North Korea, like the Potemkin village of Pyongyang, had had a facelift. It did look better. He did seem to be in control. He had defied all the predictions that this you know, 27-year-old, basketball-loving, you know, completely inexperienced person would be able to keep the regime intact. Um, so I wanted, as a reporter, to go about reporting how he had done this. And I did this by trying to talk to as many people as possible who had lived under um, North Kim Jong-un's regime in North Korea. So that's very recent defectors from North Korea. Um, but then I also set about trying to meet everybody who had ever talked to Kim Jong-un. Um, so that's a long list. <laughs> well, not that long. Uh, you know, there were four friends in Switzerland. I managed to find the aunt and uncle who posed as his parents when he was at school in Switzerland. They were in America. Um, I tracked down the few South Koreans who'd met him. But all of a sudden in 2018, that list did become very long because of the 
diplomatic offensive that Kim Jong-un went on. Uh, The problem at that time, though, that it was everybody was trying, was very involved in this diplomatic Mm. process and didn't want to ruin it by talking to me too much about it. But um, I did try to piece together, I don't call it a biography, but I hope that it was the closest thing to a biography that could be written about this very enigmatic person at that time. Um, And the big message I wanted to convey with the book was that Kim Jong-un is no joke. You know, Mm. he looks like a cartoon figure, a cartoon villain out of a Bond movie or something, and he says a lot of crazy things and has a penchant for things like riding white horses on snow-capped mountains, but he is absolutely um, strategic, ruthless, cunning. He has defied all these odds. He has presided over this very astonishing and credible uh, development of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles and he's a threat on a daily basis to Mm. 25 million North Koreans Mm. who are trapped in that Mm. country so I did want to say you know we do ourselves a disservice by underestimating him and treating him like a joke. I want to move now to talking about social media and how how social media and the way that public figures and world leaders are able to talk directly to audiences through social media how does that affect the ability of journalists to hold leaders to account Mm, great question. Mm. Uh, it affects us a lot. Um, mm. So if we look at my, you know, my recent experience in China, I think part of the reason why China has expelled so many foreign correspondents and made life so difficult for those ones who remain is because they don't feel like they need them anymore. They have mm. these wolf warrior diplomats now who are all over Twitter, have hundreds of million, hundreds of thousands or half a million followers, and they can get their message out directly to people without having to go through pesky reporters who may report, um, you know, facts that don't align with their narrative. So I think, yeah, we see a lot of that happening uh, with China. But also, I mean, look at New Zealand. Look at uh, Jacinda Ardern does a lot of Facebook Lives, um, and she is able to speak directly to people without having to answer questions. Uh, you know, mm. well, she can answer the questions that come to her from people watching, but without having to answer journalist questions. And so, uh, I mean, and I would say, though, she does do a lot of broadcast interviews and occasionally print interviews as well, so it's not like she's shying away, but... Um, but I think that social media does offer them an uh, unf- unfiltered way to deal mm. with the audience in ways that are not always conducive to the public interest. So your time at the, at the Dom Post has included a big focus on arts and culture in the capital. Um, and we, I know that I certainly always enjoy your theatre recommendations mm-hmm. and take them up and doing some fabulous things recently. What's been your cultural highlight um, of this year in Wellington? Yeah, um, and thank you for noticing that because I did come back to uh, New Zealand to Wellington and the arts are so important in Wellington but with the um, issues and challenges in the media industry a lot of arts coverage had gone away but I really felt that we were missing a big part of the texture and the vibrancy of Wellington so um, yeah I have been trying to include that back in our coverage and trying to get out one of the joys of my job I get to get out a lot and see a lot of things I think the cultural highlight for me this year, and I think you did go and see mm. this too, was Strasbourg 1518. Oh, I love that. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, at Circa, which was so meta. It was at this dance performance based on a pandemic in Strasbourg in 1518 
where the people kind of danced themselves to death, mm. danced it all out, danced out the craziness. Um, and just couldn't stop dancing. Couldn't stop and to dancing. this day, they don't really know what caused it. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? It mm. really is. But just the telling of this, it was so immersive. It was so loud. It, yeah, and so confronting. I'd never seen anything like it before. Um, and I just remember that, you know, often when I go places, I'm always on the back of my mind, it's like, oh, yes, have to remember to respond to that letter or have to remember to buy mm. toothpaste on the way home. I was literally sitting on the edge of my seat uh, during that performance, just completely immersed in it. So I thought that was um, that was great. And, and hearing the backstory that came from that, the choreographer won a Friedlander Award, which enabled her to go to New York, uh, I think it was $90,000, and she could just do whatever she liked with it, live till it ran out. And it was by having that kind of mental and creative freedom and space to explore and to experiment that she was able to come up with that incredible wow. piece of work. So wow. that's also a really strong Absolutely. case for yeah, funding artists. Investment and letting, in the arts. Exactly. Mm, mm. So... Look, look, it's been lovely talking, Anna. Can I end, I think, with two quick questions? What is it that you um, most miss about your life overseas? And then the other side of that is what is it that makes you most happy to be back here in Aotearoa, New Zealand? Mm, um, you know, this has really been the best time ever to come home because we have been living such a big life in New Zealand while everybody else has been in, you know, not great situations. But I think, I mean, I really loved the chaos of living in Beijing, the sounds and the smells and the uh, riding my bike to work every day and things. So I do miss that sense of adrenaline and being part of this massive city and this completely foreign culture. Um, but, you know, I know that that's still there and I can always go back to it. Um, and just being home, it has just, um, I'm really happy. I feel comfortable in my skin with where New Zealand is at and things and that, that this effort at biculturalism and inclusivity and talking about being empathetic and compassionate and kind really feels like a great place to be. So I am really happy to be home and to be part of my community again, my great friends from university and things have welcomed me back, but especially to be raising my son who's 10 years old as a New Zealander and with New Zealand values and knowing that he will absorb these messages of tolerance and inclusion. Yeah, lovely. Great. Well, thank you very much, Anna. It's been lovely talking. Kia ora. Kia ora, Laura. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.